Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome this week. It is the week ending March the 29th. It's Brendan here with Mark. Vetgurus.com, the place to go to contact us, vetgurus at gmail.com. And Mark, we haven't done a shout out for our sponsors, our, our contributors, our helpers, and we have two two parts of that, don't we? We have a, a, a couple of sponsors, commercial sponsors, who've given her a little bit of money to help pay for our our podcast and a shout out to Specialised Animal Nutrition this week, Mark, um, the, the makers of the wonderful the wonderful critical care for herbivores and lots of other products. And um, I was just remembering that um, Jen in Australia here, who is an Australian distributor, does a little sideline of products um, which is called Baraka Station, and I don't know whether you've had those in, Mark. They're little little chew toys, environmental treats for rabbits and, and guinea pigs, and she does a little pack around Christmas time. I always remember every year at the end of the year with um, little sparkly bits in it um, of, of food items and, and little chew apple ap- apple twigs and all sorts of stuff. Have you, have you ever... Um, purchase those to um, give or to sell to your clients no we haven't we haven't taken advantage of the Christmas ones we have had um, I know Jen's had those wonderful displays at the UP have the uh, unusual pets and avian vet special interest group conference each year and they make a pretty um, spectacular presentation and I have been generously given a couple of samples of the Baraka station um, goods and they they are they are excellent, but it does those sparkly ones does does that have the uh, the desired outcome? I think I'm trying to think what's in it. It's a variety of you know a little bit of the twigs and that, but a variety of little herbs and um, additives and you know maybe a bit of wacky tobacco tobacco or something that um, gets the rabbits going because I think some of them do seem to really enjoy enjoy those treats and we tend to. Do two things with it. Um, we that they sell out pretty quick. We do have some on sale, but we also give a reasonable number of them away to our our special clients. Our um, you know very very dear clients who are always visiting us with their little small mammals. So it's a bit of a give it back to them present, and they really appreciate it. So no, they um, we, we we invariably sell out um, whatever stock we purchase with those. So yeah, that's something to look for, and. Um, We'll have the link to Specialised Animal Nutrition, which, as I say, is the Oxbow distributor here in Australia. Um, and you can go to their website at vetgurus.com um, and help support them. And the other support is um, people, um, we have a few people who are patrons, um, which is patreon.com, and we have that contact as well on our website. And that's, um, you can donate um, a few dollars, throw us a bone, as we like to call it. Um, since, and- since we've um, had our own uh, Patreon, I've been looking at that system and, I don't know, Brendan, it seems to me to be an excellent way, um, I don't know, I felt good about the support we've gotten and um, and in turn I've, uh, there's an, a number of... Um, uh, a number of worthy causes I've in turn supported. So I like that system and I'm very glad for the and thankful for the people who can see their way clear to 
help us, yeah, to throw us a bone and help us um, defray some of the, the uh, you know, when we first started, we didn't realise all the costs associated with the podcast. And um, while we gladly take them on ourselves, uh, just a little bit of um, additional help never goes astray, Brendan. Absolutely, absolutely. And Mark, my update this week is I did visit the embassy again today. <laughs> and good news, I have my visa. So I have my visa to enter a one only visit to China, so which is planned in in May, late May, and I'll be there for a couple of weeks, one week of teaching. I'm doing a, a course there in Shanghai, and then I'm heading off in the wilderness, um, probably with a few minders, um, to look around and do a bit of touristy bits and then fly to Beijing and spend a few days there before I head back home. So I'm looking forward to it hugely, Mark, um, my trip to China. And, um, yeah, they were very efficient and a very lovely lady at, at, um, who took my money um, at the um, at the embassy and and fortunately gave my passport back so excellent i'm ready to go so i've just got to book a few more um things for the trip um, over the next few weeks and um i'm sure there'll be more more news about it um closer to the close to the event and i did get one email about this mark i didn't tell you this beforehand um from our good friend Kathy saying that hey um she had a friend who got a visa for heading across to Vi- uh, China as well, and uh, they applied through the mail, which you can, and sent it off and got their visa back. And she was she was accusing me of um, embellishing my story. Yeah, embellishing. Um, and um, I'd just like to say to Kathy, well, Kathy, um, two things. <laughs> number one, number one, um, I, I took a hit for the team. You know, somebody has to do this, and we have to um, we have to get out there and I thought, look, I'm going to go to the embassy because if something goes wrong with the application of my visa, I want to be there when um, when I when I um, burst into tears and they can see me bursting into tears um, and hopefully I can fix it when I'm there. So I thought it would be better um, to try and make sure it goes through. You are really a um, face-to-face person. You, you, you that's right. perform, you know, at your best when, when face-to-face. <laughs> so and the story... The little tale I told last week was, well, it was not embellished. It it, it happened. Um, it was true, and the story about the photocopier and um, all those sort of things um, were were definitely what happened. So, but yeah, good news. Um, it's all on track at the moment, and um, we'll see what happens with the next steps. So that's my story this week. Um, have you got anything to to add of interest, Mark? I'm only reporting that we you you would have heard the um the the excitement. At our place, at the introduction of a new feline, um, uh, I don't know whether it's widely known, but um, upon my demise, my wonderful partner in life will become one of the um, the world's um, uh, world famous cat ladies. Um, she'll have her own coterie of of uh, multiple uh, cats living in the house in my place when I'm gone. Um, and she's building that collection even as we speak, and so I just am proud to announce the introduction of uh, Gabby Grace, the dark tortoiseshell kitten, who has uh, moved into our house and probably during this podcast will uh, have some interaction with some of the other cats that live with us. We may hear that I certainly heard that off off air before we started, and I thought you'd, you you were fostering a little Tasmanian devil there, um, Mark, with that scream and that squeal that was going on there. So yes, um, I think they're trying to sort out um, 
sort out who's boss already, aren't they? Uh, we've got the pheromones on full pump at the moment. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm going to jump in, Mark. This is going to be a really um, snappy, um, snappy one as usual. Um, and I'm going to jump into the first news story, Mark, and this one I quite enjoyed. And it was actually, I saw the actual report of this in the Australian Veterinary Journal, but it's been reported elsewhere. And the actual link I have is to the BBC and it is the pig proof fence mark Denmark is building a pig proof fence and um, when I first thought of that I thought of how um, effective or not um, you know the rabbit proof fence that they that they have built in Australia um, to try and stop rabbits um, passing between certain areas and, and limit their spread um, yeah I think they're going to struggle with the pig proof fence so they're planning well they've started building at mark a 70 kilometer which is 43 mile fence along the border with Germany in an effort to control the migration of wild boar because they're concerned about swine um, African swine fever um, um, passing through with those um, wild boar um, so yeah it, it goes into a little bit of detail about the the actual border fence um, that it's only going to be about five foot tall but at least one uh, 50 centimeters deep to try and stop them burrowing under it and also have gaps at border crossings which I'm sure they'll get through and have at least one gate mark every kilometre and steps elsewhere so humans can climb over it. Well, that's good. And have 20 centimetre square openings every 100 metres in an effort to let small animals move through it, Mark. So do you think this is going to work, Mark? Um, this No. No, it's not going to work, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, and um, I don't know, it has so many echoes of of uh, Mexico endeavours to do something, to be seen to be doing something when actually not doing anything. Um, yes, I, I, uh, I um, admire the um, Danish Department of uh, Environment and Food and their relevant minister for being determined to uh, prevent uh, African swine fever from reaching Denmark. African swine fever doesn't affect people, um, but it will affect the uh, swine industry, the, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, pig meat industry. Uh, but I don't know whether it's the best way to spend money, Brendan. And I've had a look at the photos of that fence and, geez, I've seen... As we'd say in Australia, we'd call it piss week, wouldn't we? It's a, a word we would choose. Um, that's, I was, that's probably I was the looking word. for the subtle way to explain that it looks like a decent breeze would blow it over, let alone a rampaging boar from Germany. But, um, yeah, it doesn't look like much more than... Look, at it, Brendan, it'd be hard up keeping school children on one side of it, I reckon, let alone wild boar. Yes, they will build a fence and the boars will get over it, is my, my prediction there, Mark. What's your first news story? My, my first story, well, it's a bit of a quirky one. It has to do with birds and racing, um, and it's the story of um, Armando, um, who has, has um, well, is quite possibly the most famous racing pigeon in the world at the moment. And Armando, is uh, he's been um, likened to racing car drivers or... Um, and uh, he's famous because at a recent auction, um, a number of Chinese buyers um, got into a bit of a bidding war, um, and um, he ended up uh, 
being sold for 1.25 million euros, which um is just shy of two million Australian dollars, Brendan. Um, and I look, I really, really um am conflicted about this story because you know. I have no trouble valuing any bird at two million dollars. They're very special animals, and and their uh, their economic value easily surpasses that in my mind. But the difference between my mind and the real world, where someone actually coughed up two million dollars to own a very fast pigeon, in the you know, I don't know the world. Not that everything has to be prioritised strictly according to need, but in a world that we're in at the moment, $2 million could be spent on so many other things. But I'm, I'm actually quite, um, I'm, you know, this got me to look into the um, the whole racing pigeon industry, which sort of went through a little bit of a lull maybe a couple of decades ago, but um, seems to have had a bit of a resurgence, Brendan. and. At the, because there seems to be a, a significant number of very wealthy players, both through um, the uh, Middle East and Mediterranean, uh, through South Africa and uh, um, and Southeast Asia, um, there's there's been a whole injection of money into this game, and and these sorts of bidding wars, I think, are, are going to be increasingly likely. There's some races in the world now where the total prize pool for a pigeon race is in excess of $1.3 million. The winning bird may take home, in some races, $600,000. So the the logic of the um, Chinese buyer was that they would make their money back um, on this bird, given their confidence that it's going to throw quite a few uh, pigeon chicks who are well, very bloody fast, um, that they uh, they can actually make a profit on this investment. Um, and he is, the, he is the best one-day long-distance pigeon ever in Belgium, Mark. And, yeah, I think that winning bidder probably views it as a, as a coup. <laughs> you, are, you are so sad. <laughs> um, one thing I really enjoyed about... You saved that up <laughs> I was thinking of that. I was trying to work that joke out as you were speaking there. Um, one of the things I enjoyed about this article is that there is a um, – I'm on the website now from, well, the abc.net.au, Mark, and it has a picture of Armando um, with the with the graphic there from the pigeon photographer. Um, so you can see the little logo there. So there's somebody out there who's probably making a hell of a lot of money, especially if they're worth worth that much, um, as a as a as a business just photographing pigeons. Although I must admit it's a very good picture of Amanda say, there. Yeah. I'd 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 spend a few dollars to 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 purchase him. They've got a picture side on picture there of Amanda and also a close up picture of the eye of one of the eyes and perhaps that's something they use to help identify the mark. I don't know, but um or that's the particular way this um pigeon photographer likes to to promote um their work um is have have a have a close up of the eye of, of the subject as well. Um yeah, so sorry for batting no, no. in there, but um, it is—it's a—it is a very um, good picture. Um, the uh, pi- it is. pigeon photography industry is—it it amazes me. It's, 
Exxonages. Well, with the money that's in pigeon racing, I'm not surprised. Speaking of exploding, it was um, duck opening season here in um, Victoria a week or so ago. Mark and one of my colleagues, Belinda, she headed out um, to man or woman the tent, um, the, the veterinary tent um, for for um, injured um, injured animals during the duck opening season here. And um, for those listeners overseas who who do not know it's still um there's a still the duck shooting season here in victoria i'm not quite sure what the situation is with you in new south wales mark has it been banned or not yes it has um yeah they did lower the the bag limits etc but um yeah my opinion is it shouldn't be happening at all but belinda went out to one of the lakes and um it was quite quiet there and you know i remember a rite of passage doing that at one stage many, many years ago at the height of the controversy where it was very, um, gee, it was a very toxic sort of situation there and I, I copped flack from all sides, Mark, from the Shooting Federation and from the from the hardcore animal libbers and um, I was sort of in between. Everybody disliked me. I suppose things haven't changed over the years when I think of things. I always say that, um, that you know you're doing the right thing when the extremists both think you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, well, it was it was, a, it was an eye opener, and it was a good, as I say, rite of passage. Um, and it was amazing some of the animals that were brought in that were legally or illegally shot, you know, including some turtles, Mark, and oh. some low flying turtles that got caught. Easy mistake to make. Been, yes, um, and some swans and all sorts of um, all sorts of um, bird life that that happened to be in the range of the of the shotgun um, or the. So yeah, but um, that's a bit of an aside, and I don't know how I got onto that. Oh, we're talking about birds, and and um, yeah, I'm going to jump onto the next news story, Mark. Otherwise, we won't get through to our main topic. It could be a two-parter. I can feel a two-parter <laughs> coming with our main topic here. And my um, second news story is um, it's an uplifting one. Platypus, Mark, platypuses are not depressed. Um, is um, is my take on this, um, and that's because they're eating lots of antidepressants or ingesting lots of antidepressants. And there was a couple of good surveys done here in, in Victoria around um, not just Sierra River but um, also around um, up higher in um, some of the other creeks and waterways around the Melbourne region here in southern Southern Eastern, Southeastern Australia, Mark, and they, the ecologists found near, nearly 70 different medications in water dwelling um, insects. Um, and as you know, Mark, um, platypus diet consists of worms, insects, and crustaceans, yabbies, um, as we as we call them here. So they they did a bit of a, a study, and um, it was a bit bit scary, Mark. Um, they they tested for ninety eight different pharmaceutical compounds, and traces of pharma- pharmaceuticals were found in creatures at all six sites, even in some of the relatively pristine areas there, Mark. Um, so it included things like Alzheimer's medications, codeine, antifungal drugs, antidepressants. Um, yeah, so um, and that was transmitted through the insects and through the water, water from flushing things down the toilet. Mark, so do not thr- flush your drugs down the toilet is the bottom line for this story, Mark. Um, but is yeah, it a little bit depressing? Although for the for the for the um, for the platypus, I don't think they're feeling depressed anymore with, with what what the levels they're in. Do you think that I can't quite um, I can't quite wrap my head around the part of this that suggests that the toilet is the 
the avenue, but is it the avenue because people are ingesting these drugs and some of them are not broken down in the body and are excreted unchanged in urine, or are people just dumping their excess antidepressants directly into the toilet? Yeah, I well, yes, I, th- I think both. I think they were mainly talking about that they were um, being flushed down the toilet and then going going across the f- around the food chain and, and getting to the 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 water treatment plants um, or not getting to the water treatment plants where they'd be um, where they'd be um, supposedly removed there. Yeah, so wow. yeah, it's um, it's um, a bit scary, a bit scary. But that's my my my. Um, my last story, Mark. So it's uplift, uplifting and yet not depressing. <laughs> it's depressing and yet antidepressing. Yeah, um, what's I your think you're trying story? too hard to be funny. <laughs> just got to let it flow, Brendan. My last one is um, the <laughs> um, is the discovery of um, a new species of spiders um, in Colombia. Now. These are tarantula-like spiders, the uh, bald-legged spiders, and they occur um, through uh, other parts of Central America. But this is the first record of them being discovered in Colombia. Now, there's something very interesting, and I thought of you immediately that I read about these spiders, Brendan. The scientific name for at least one of the genuses of the new spiders discovered in Colombia is Stormtropus, um, in reference to the Star Wars clone trooper army. Now, I'm told that because these all the different species are very the bald legged spiders are very, very similar and difficult to tell apart, they could be clone like, which fits into the whole stormtrooper. Oh, I see. I see the thinking there, even, Mark. Even yes. more importantly, they're my gallimorphs, Brendan, the, uh, from the tarantula family. And so unlike the more advanced spiders that, um, you know, weave massive webs in the trees like our orb weavers, these, are, these spiders are reasonably clumsy and just sort of tumble around the uh the um the the um ground level of the forests in which they live and that um combination being relatively similar to each other some capacity for camouflage with relatively unskilled movements led the researchers to immediately think they should call them stormtroopers if they'd had lasers if they'd had laser cannons they would have shot them everywhere and never hit anything apparently uh, i think the scientists are trying too hard. Um, now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're right. Because the three genera that they um, they they're currently known from the country are Anas Anasapsis um, Paratroopers was the the, the um, second one there, Mark, as well as Stormtroopers. Yes, and the Paratroopers ones because of their um, ability to camouflage um, themselves. So yes. I suppose it's a, it's it's quite an onerous task, isn't it? Naming all these new species, and um, you might get a little bit sick of it. It reminds me of our one of our big um, big clients is a, a welfare organisation who deals with lots and lots of rabbits. You know, hundreds, literally hundreds, if not well over a thousand 
rabbits plus every year and um, I just amaze at their ability to come up with unique names for all these rabbits that they bring in because they're they're constantly um, um, and, and it's and it's pretty rare I must admit that they have a they bring in a rabbit that has a, a name that we've used before you know and we do enter them yeah we do enter them as a separate name you know not just as a general name under their under their um, under their welfare um, shelter name, so yeah, it's um, they must spend a fair bit of time going through what to name your kid books. Um, I think, Mark, um, in order to to get we, we, cert- but we certainly a- have a a fair selection of Flopsies and uh, Peters and uh, well, Peking. <laughs> Peking for the ducks and all the all the food ones. Um, now, I think we should jump on to our main topic, Mark. I'm, I'm desperately trying to make this snappy, um, and we haven't, um, as usual. We've um, we've been rabbiting on as usual, Mark. So our main topic this week is foot problems, so pododermatitis, um, bumblefoot is the, the, the common term that we use for it. So I think we'll meander our way around treating this problem or serious uh, syndrome i suppose and and talk a little bit about some of the species that we commonly see it in and um, our thoughts on managing these cases which can be quite problematic as far as i'm concerned mark once um once um once it's developed more than anything from minor onwards that they can be quite difficult to to treat and, and certainly very difficult to cure in a lot of cases in my in my my experience anyway. So, do you want to jump off, Mark, with with um, maybe a chat about some of the species that you've seen with with bumblefoot? I do, and I, I wanted to pat you came up with this topic, Brendan, and you know how I always am very excited to approach the our main topic in our podcast. But I was I thought you'd nailed this one. This is a great one, and it's a great one because. Um, it is largely a, um, you know, it's not so much of a problem for most of our um, our dogs and cats, our small animals. It really is a bit of a, um, a very, very common problem for us to be dealing with in our exotic and unusual species. And um, and I noticed in your list there, I was most the only thing I was upset about was that you were remiss in mentioning yeah. the avian species. Yes, I left. I left off one species, but that was left off for you to um, fire up about, Mark. Yes. You know, you know, I'm in a mood to fire up today, Brendan. Um, and and so, of course, we see it quite regularly in birds. And I'll 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 take some pleasure in uh, um, having a bit of a talk about the specific issues. And and you, I, I pat you on the back yet again, Brendan, because I think you're um, entirely right in pointing out that. Um, on the surface, a little bit of an infection on the foot may be a bit of a one-dimensional problem um, when first looked at by the client, but it is a multifactorial thing, and uh, and there are individual species car- uh, factors that contribute to how it develops, and and they, as you said, they make it sometimes very difficult to hope to get to the point where you can um, hope for a cure. So uh, we also see it in our rabbits and guinea pigs. Um, and certainly it's a common thing for us to see in some of our reptile species, obviously not snakes, but um, in the uh, the other squamates and, um, and turtles, for example, we definitely have the problem. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, it's an almost daily occurrence for us to be talking to someone 
in bird practice about the feet of their feathered friend. Yes. Yeah, we it's a big topic, isn't it, Mark? But well we might we might just slowly work through some of the some of the aspects of it. And I think the next thing we should really chat about is that um what you hinted there in that um treatment wise, I'm gonna jump straight into that, Mark. Um it's always good to try and catch these very early because if we haven't caught it very early, it is in my experience, an absolute nightmare and a, a big long haul, isn't it, to try and um, get it under control and, and potentially cure them. And often we end up with a with a patient where we just have to manage it for the rest of the life and, and um, it can end up being palliative care um, just because of that problem they had with those with those um, those legs. Um, and we, we, we mainly... We, People mainly think about the hocks there, so the back legs there, and 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 um, with, with the bumblefoot. But it's not just those hind legs, is it, Mark? In our four-legged friends, it's um, it's the front legs as well. Although that it's um, I think a over preponderance of the hind legs um, that are affected there. So yeah, so I think that the, the first comment I'd make, Mark, is we need to make sure that it is something that we look at. In every patient that comes in, for um, especially for that first health check, um, we're, we're uncertain of the husbandry um, quality of the owners that they're providing their pets, that we um, flip the animal over and have a look at those um, undersides of those feet. Definitely the case, Brendan. And, and when you do that, um, I'm sure you're doing the same thing as I am. And, and, and obviously once there's a serious problem, I mean, it's pretty easy to... Uh, detect the reddened and ulcerated area and um, and uh, make your diagnosis once it's advanced. But these early ones, you have got to look for relatively subtle change. And, and I definitely am not just restricting my examination to, to the... Um, the wearing the weight bearing surface of the foot. Um, I want to have a look at the whole uh, um, the whole shape of the legs. I think that many of these, particularly amongst our birds and uh, to a lesser extent the reptiles, um, the formation of the bones and the pressure on the weight bearing surface that can change because of metabolic bone disease is often a predisposing factor. And so, forming a bit of an opinion about how appropriate the shape of those legs are is the sort of first point you want to make but then you want to even be you want to pick things up at such a stage where the you know you're well before puffiness and erythema and um, purulent discharge and dramatic change you want to just pick up on the even the roughened papillate surface on the weight-bearing part of the feet of those animals if there's a change to that, if it becomes overly smooth, if there's just even the tiniest little bit of a red scab on it, then they're the sort of things you want to pick up, as you say, at the routine health exam and make those changes to husbandry that are going to solve the problem before it becomes serious. Yep. Absolutely, Mark. <laughs> Spot on. Um yeah, it's and us and gee, we're jumping around a bit here. Um we we both mentioned that the causes are, are often much more than the the obvious ones that that people would consider when they're not um, seeing many bumblefoot or pavida dermatitis issues. And the obvious ones, if we jump jump over to causes for a moment, Mark, are the substrate and hygiene um, that people 
that people always um, point to and, and, and quiz the client, you know, do you have inadequate, if we talk about the mammals and the reptiles, is it a really grotty environment? Is it is it clean very often? What cleaners do they use? What is the substrate that that lizard or that turtle um, um, is on? Can that turtle um, get out of the water um, and has a dry land area where it can manage to um, dry out a little bit if it's not a fully aquatic um, um, chelonian um, with the rabbits and the guinea pigs and the other small mammals, especially the rabbits and the guinea pigs where we see lots of it, Mark, I'm sure you Definitely. do too. Um, it's it's what sort of substrate do they have in that in that hutch or that enclosure um, and the the one that we always point to and 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 and, and consider a, a prime cause is um, the classic the classic hutch that just has a wire bot bottom on it and um, they don't put anything over that wire bottom um, expecting that then that it'll be good because the faeces can then pass through especially if the hutch is off the ground on little stilts um, but we have that guinea pig or rabbit then walking on walking directly on the wire mark and we don't like that at all and i think that contributes definitely to to a lot of them but um yeah hygiene and, and the actual surface that they walk on um I've, we, we see an increase in number of rabbits that are kept as inside rabbits um they don't go out at all and um i'm certainly suspicious of some of the um some of the cases that get pododermatitis where there's a, a reaction to the flooring mark um and not just the obvious one where they might be on floor that's too hard, um, like wooden floor that um, they might have a bit of reaction to the carpet that's down, um, the synthetic carpet that they that they have in almost like an allergic response um, to it. Because I think the general thoughts are with with rabbits that it is that they you know they um, they need a they need a um, a substrate that has a bit of give to it, so we don't want something super hard or or, or super soft. Um, so something that mimics what happens out there in in nature, Mark. And um, you know, um, you know, I'm really jumping around <laughs> here a bit, but um, with with rabbits as well, I, I I always quiz the client about behavioural issues. If I see one rabbit with pedodermatitis in a group of rabbits, I, I immediately hint or ask the client is that rabbit um, stressed out is it thumping a lot more than it used to is it you know um, trying to trying to exert its influence on the others or is it insecure and um, it's amazing how many of these are that rabbits that they will say yes he or she has 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 changed behavior recently and they are doing a, a hell of a lot more thumping um, than they used to and that can contribute as well so so we have to look at the whole spectrum of possible causes from our obvious husbandry and hygiene things to to secondary problems that then um, influence the way the confirmation and the anatomy and the the physiology and and you mentioned the metabolic bone disease um in the birds mark um do you want to chat about um let's jump around back to birds about um perches and and what the recommendations are and what some of the perches that you see um that you don't like and and how they contribute to the pododermatitis in birds and you know do you see people still buy the perches and the, and the aviaries where they have those perches that just oh, have the yes, set paper do. And, and you know the worst part about those is that um very well-meaning people who can see that there's a problem go to a pet store and they um, they, they get uh, you know informed that the best way to fix this problem is to whack one of those sandpaper wraps on them. And of course, Brendan, that's at that stage of the problem, quite possibly the worst thing to do. And and so, what I usually suggest to those people is that I commend them on their 
zealous their zeal for solving the problem, but they've just barked up the wrong tree, metaphorically speaking, and they need to employ perches of varying diameters and varying angles. So part of the theory in our birds is that being uh, captive, they're they often weigh a little bit more than the wild ones. And if they sit on perfectly round, perfectly regular perches, then they're putting pressure on the same points, the same weight-bearing points of their feet all the time, no matter where they move. And so varying the diameter means that they get to exercise and weight-bear on different parts of that surface. And that means that we're not excluding circulation from particular locations with any, you know, for any constant length of time. And additionally, if the perches are are level, the birds rest on them without any active muscular movement. And that lowers the perfusion at the end of the foot. So if they've got to climb, if the perches are not level, and particularly if the perches around the food dishes are not level, or the food uh, activity stations are not level, then the birds have to actually flex those muscles further up the leg. And that process does drive blood down at a higher blood pressure into the foot. And that perfusion tends to lessen the likelihood of the type of trauma that leads to bumblefoot. Yes. So would you see it weakly? Oh, yes. I would say um, that amongst the birds we get to see, uh, the pet birds we get to see, um, it would literally be, um, you know, uh, every second day. We would see uh, at our practice maybe 15 pet birds a day, and I would say at least every second day we see birds that have um, significant changes to their feet that we have to manage. And when we do get to that point, once we have to manage them, then we're moving away from that health engendering talk of, uh, um, you know, natural perches of branches and and uh, angles and exercise and stimulation of um, of uh, enrichment, behavioural enrichment, and we start to move towards the sorts of perches that might have, you know, some form of neoprene wrap around them so that they they are not hard and they're supportive and they allow uh, blood flow. Once the birds get to the stage where they've got lesions, we have to manage them a little bit differently, Brendan. Yes. And, I mean, you can see the, the, the client's perspective in that they, they have this bird that they think, oh, gee, the nails are getting getting longer and then they go to a somebody who with not much experience or, or, a, or a pet shop where, where the staff are, are not clued up about um, what should be what should be advised to them and they think oh have this perch it's got sort of a sandpaper on it and that will wear the nails down so yeah and but it's not just the nails that it wears down as well is it mark Brandon, um, you're, you're being so, far too you know tonight's not the night for tolerance of ignorance not in on any level <laughs> I'm a very tolerant person, Mike. It, does, it breaks my heart, mainly because these people, you know, it's expensive to come and talk to me about this stuff. They're highly motivated and passionate people, and and I just get so frustrated that um, that, that uh, as you said, the relatively simple analysis, which on the very surface seems, oh, 
the nails are a bit long, um, I'll get something that sands them down naturally, sandpaper around the perch. Um, but um, but it is, it, it's one of the gratifying moments, I suppose, when delivered unjudgmentally, as I struggle to do, um, the explanation of the best way to make sure they're birds. And of course, the, the wearing of the nails is dependent um, on that whole flexion thing I was talking about. If the birds are just resting on the proximal weight-bearing surfaces away from the nails, they're not driving the nails into the perch, whether it's rough or smooth. Um, it's only when the perch is not level. Different diameters exactly, as well. That they've got yeah. a grip on and drive, use the flexor muscles to drive the nail in, and then it'll wear. So, yes, I, 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 I love that moment when, um, with suitable drama, I explain all this, and you can see the light go on, um, and then the dread that they've done something wrong that might hurt their bird. But obviously, I'm there to ensure that uh, that goes no further and everything will be okay. <laughs> Very good. So let's talk about treatments, Mark. So if, for instance, if you detect an early pododermatitis in, well, let's separate it into species, okay? Let's talk about the small mammals first, a guinea pig or a, or a um, rabbit with the hind foot, Mark, with the hock there, and, and you part the fur there. And um, for those people who don't see too many rabbits, um you will there will be almost like a little ball patch, won't there, Mark, when you part the fur there on the ventral hock, um, and then there'll be a tiny little bit of a almost like a scab there or a bit of scale there, and that's what you'll see in the normal in the normal rabbit. So don't mistake that for a pododermatitis. And also don't don't be tempted to cut the fur short or super short or cut it at all in that area because it does have a protective function over that ventral hock there. So, um, And I know that some people are a bit overzealous with a groom and they can end up um, clipping away the fur to the skin level there and then we will get a pododermatitis. So if, if you um, examined a, a rabbit or a guinea pig and you found a, an obvious um, but not severe um let's say, erythematous area. It's red and it looks inflamed um, and it's a bit um, a bit raised up or swollen there, Mark. Um, what, what's your approach? Well, to let those? me start with what is not my approach, Brendan. I, I, I want to, first of all, say that I don't leap for antibiotics straight off the bat. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that um, we want to... Um, wherever possible, set up, you know, the, the, um, I suppose I should mention those preface things that um, whichever species it is, we want to look at their weight and their activity levels and all those things. But for the actual lesions, we probably are trying to um, set up some form of supportive bandage um, that uh, in the first instance that takes a little bit of the weight off. So we're sort of thinking about adapted donut style bandages. And you can get um, some pretty neat self-adhesive, you know, there's uh, um, these lovely corn pads um, that are available in human chemists for, um, for people who have sores on their feet. And they can be cut to particular shapes and they do stick to the fur pretty well and tend not to worry the rabbits and guinea pigs too much. Um, they're soft and padded and uh, they often can be placed with some um, minimal additional protective bandage over the top because um, that's always the worry that if you start 
bandaging these carelessly or excessively, then the part part of the um, contributing problem is altered blood flow. And if you get those bandages just wrong a little bit, then you can set up a whole um, domino effect of trouble for that leg. I've seen some of these pododermatitis poorly bandaged end up in amputation, Brendan. So I'm always very careful about the way that we bandage them to manage that pressure. Um, but that's probably we, what we do in the first instance. It's a bit of an art, I think, with the with the bandaging techniques and there's lots of different thoughts on that, Mark, and variations on that. Do you use, um, will you be placing them on an anti-inflammatory? Indeed we do. We love a meloxicam for these, both for, for two reasons, because um, meloxicam obviously decreases the inflammation locally and decreases the pain, so the animals tend to move around a little bit more, and that helps with perfusion. But the non-steroidals, that, that microscopic level also influence the rate at which um, platelets coagulate and congeal and um, set up little clots in the wound. And so the anti-inflammatory drugs like meloxicam have multiple roles to play in limiting the progress of this problem. So it it is one situation where a a, um, meloxicam deficiency is is useful (laughs) um, to provide some there, Mark. Yeah, and I certainly dispense it um, frequently because it's... we end up with that snowball effect, don't we? Where, where if they're showing signs of that, um, those hocks being painful, then they'll obviously alter their gait and alter their way they sit. Um, and there's some great little. There's a fantastic. I think it's almost a chapter mark or half a chapter in the out of print now Francis Harcourt Brown's book, um, textbook of rabbit medicine, where she has some lovely line drawings of of the the, the conformational issues that then progress as the um, rabbit develops some um, pododermatitis there, Mark, and the way they sort of don't sit flat-footed along that. Um, along that um, um, area from the hock to the toes there, Mark. Um, so it's, it's trying to stop that as well. And and, and the obvious ones that y- you address if if there are an issue is that those husbandry issues as far as the cleaning and um, if the substrate was obviously um, inadequate um, in the first place, we, we, we try and adjust that or we modify that substrate where we where we're probably going to have a softer substrate than we would for a, for a rabbit that has or a guinea pig that has um, no issues with with a pododermatitis. Um, yeah, and then we, we recheck them um, several days or a week or so later and then if things are, are going south, that's when we start to think about using um, going the next step, which could include um, taking radiographs and um, because some of these, even though they look superficial, we may have um, deeper deeper problems there, Mark, and once we get, as you well know, once we get a problem with the with that hock area and we get bony involvement, it can be an absolute nightmare with them. And as you mentioned, we can sometimes end up, unfortunately, having to amputate um, limbs with them um, if it gets to that critical stage with them. Um, they're the ones, once they get a little bit worse, Mark, sorry, um, is where we where we um, where I tend to um, use a, a slather a lot of um, what you probably don't want me to use, and that's an antibiotic. We use the flamazine um, ointment um, in conjunction, plus or minus, with bandaging with them, and I, and I do find that it is it is very helpful with them where we've got an angry infected um, infected. Oh, foot ta- don't. 
take me the wrong way, Brendan. I think um, there are definitely cases where antibiotics are appropriate. I think, um, and particularly uh, the use of things like flamazine or solicite, um, flamazine has particular effect against those pseudomonas and aeromonas organisms and um and its topical function it, I, I have no drama with and uh and anything that protects those um cells those fragile cells trying to repopulate that pressured area um is a good thing so um flamazine's not on my hit list at all but i'm just worried that um that often people will leaf, lead to you know leap to um, systemic antibiotics at the first instance, and uh, and um, and usually, um, you know, obviously those osteomyelitis cases, um, we're at a point where we've got to debride new systemic antibiotics or consider amputation. But this is not a fundamentally a bacterial problem. Bacteria complicate the problem and need to be treated, but there are other things in the early stages. Was all I was trying to say. And I think the key part with that, Mark, is is then jumping onto the, all those other issues in that, that, that we need to always be clear that this pedodermatitis is often secondary to some other issue with the animal and the classic one there with the with the rabbits that, that I'm finding um, and increasingly, especially in the rabbits that are middle age or older, is is spinal issues or, or, or hip problems or osteoarthritis development um, with them. So we get these stiff, sore older rabbits that have often disc disease and, and spondylitis spondylosis occur in their mark. So the conformation of the way they're sitting and standing um, um, is affected and then we end up getting the secondary um, pododermatitis. Um, um, similarly, uh, uh, the, the, the rabbits or, or the guinea pigs too that have urinary tract issues, um, so they so they have, for instance, and we've spoken about this at length recently with our um, um Piggy pee episode, Mark. Um, uh, UTIs and 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 um, calculi um, and um, urolithiasis with them. So it's painful to urinate. So they hold off, or they stand abnormally, um, or they may have uh, dysurostrenguria. So they have um, urine scald. Um, so again, they're then um, altering their gait and the way they sit or not, um, or stand when they're, when they're urinating, and then it puts abnormal pressure now, on Brendan, you've got to answer a question for me when it comes to guinea pigs. Um, we, when, we routinely treat uh, these cases with supplementary vitamin C on the basis that, um, you know, they, they have a dietary requirement for that, and that um, connective tissue damage is a consequence of vitamin C deficiency. Um, do you see, because I don't see vitamin C as being a critical factor in getting these ones right, Is what's your experience with that? Exactly the same. I mean, I it's anecdotal, but I don't, I don't think it plays a major factor unless, you know, the, the husbandry is really dramatically out and... Um, you know they've been fed an absolutely terrible diet for um, a length of time. I'm a, I know that that um, there's a there's a thought that any unwell guinea pig or, or or some clinics go to the stage of any guinea pig that's admitted to the clinic for medical treatment is supplemented with vitamin C. Um, I I as a rule don't do that. Um, perhaps I should be doing it more often. Um, but yeah. Um, my general thoughts are that it probably 
anecdotally, I don't think it contributes um, a great deal to, to these pododermatitis issues. We're, we're thinking, surprisingly enough, the same way yet again. Now, let's talk about our birdies. So what's what's the process with the birds, Mark? How do you deal with those when they have the well, bumblefoot? The first, the, the I would argue, my, my argument would be that um, it's a much more serious problem in birds because they only have two weight-bearing limbs. And so if something goes pear-shaped with one of those, geez, we don't do, we do occasional ones with some parrots in some particular circumstances, but I think it's a much greater, um, I like the idea, we've talked a number of times about amputations, how um, you've got to look at the whole animal's quality of life. And I think there are, some animals that will adapt to those changes, but geez, I want to be awfully convinced with most uh, with most birds before I would contemplate that. And they, and generally speaking, I rule out all um, birds that are pretty much over one hundred and twenty grams. That I think once you get to cockatoo and glass-sized birds, you are not going to be able to amputate one of the legs and allow those birds to have reasonable quality of life. So. I really think it's even more important than birds because um, they've only got two of those legs. And the circulation to those legs is even more easily compromised. Birds, by their nature, have smaller blood vessels, which are, in order to allow them to maintain their body temperature, they can peel off quite a deal of blood through um, those uh, um, blood vessels that... uh, uh, anastomose high um, and the feet are adapted to a relatively more anoxic lifestyle than the rest of the bird just so that those uh, ravens sitting on the the, uh, the ski lift uh, cables um, so they don't freeze because their legs are exposed um, those that uh, that adaptation to having exposed legs in the cold uh, means that they are much, much more prone to having compromised blood supply to their feet. So for a number of reasons, I think it's an even more serious problem in birds, Brendan. So how do you treat them? (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much the same way. We um, do that first, flip them over on their back, make sure that you pay particular attention. I have to now use magnification, my my loop, to pay particular attention to the undersurface of the feet. Make sure that they are not smooth and uh, and regular and uh, locked into the one position. Make sure the bones are all, um, and the joints are all normal. As you talked with the rabbits, those painful... Uh, arthritis conditions, whether in the spine or the legs, will lock the feet in position so that the exercise and perfusion doesn't occur. Um, And then try and change the husbandry as much as possible. When it's early, try and manage the bird's weight. We often find that um, that body weight thing, I have a number of beautiful rainbow lorikeets. So these rainbow lorikeets probably average in the wild about a body weight of 145, 148 grams. And uh, we have a couple of 200 gram plus lorikeets who, I don't know, they just sit in the one spot because they're fully sated very, very quickly. Um, they, they're 
morbid obesity means that they have relatively poor perfusion and they just sit in one spot and they end up with um, pododermatitis. So changing all those factors, um, making the birds lose weight, um, making them active, giving them things to do, um, that certainly changes the course of the disease. But I tend to be very aggressive, Brendan. I know this will come as a surprise to you, but at the earliest instance I talk to the clients about how difficult it is and how much we may have to do, um, how we may even we may even have to think about multiple surgeries in these birds. And I'm aware of a number of endangered birds of prey where the... Um, where the whole process has taken, um, you know, they've been injured, they've been kept uh, in such a way that their wing injuries heal perfectly, but obviously because they can't do their normal things, they end up with a uh, bumble foot, and um, they might have 18 months additional time in care before release, and um, maybe four or six additional anesthesias to, uh, to get the surgery just right so that the the uh, the bumblefoot heels um, and people I don't know when I tell them those stories I feel that they're much much more driven to uh, to solve the problem earlier rather than wait for a surgical resolution. Yes, and good point about the weight mark, and we often forget about that sometimes in our small mammals as well, and I think it has a big contributing factor to some of the pododermatitis in our, in our little guys. Um, we haven't spoken about reptiles, have we? So um, is there is there any um, specific aspects of the pododermatitis in our lizards or our, our turtles that you'd like to it's point out? It's two quick about? ones. It, I, I find that um, while I would always be alert to metabolic bone disease problems in birds and our uh, small mammals. It's a major contributing factor in um, in our reptiles, and it, and my main pododermatitis case would probably be that metabolic bone disease, bearded dragon that um, has its legs locked into a particular position. They'll often look like they've got their toes turned up, Brendan, and they probably weight bear much more on their heels than on the actual surfaces that have evolved to accept weight. And they are often with the discomfort, as you pointed out before, because these things, uh, the position hurts, they tend not to move around nearly as much. And and if the surface they're on is at all abrasive, we have some clients who use those artificial turf um, uh, surfaces. And um, yes. while they, you know, they give the impression that they're going to be nice and easily sanitized. Um, if the movement that the lizards do do, do what little they do um, is on an abrasive surface like that, and there's any, you know, if, uh, any possibility that the skin can be macerated by um, some moisture and some stools, um, then that, that's amazing how abrasive those uh, artificial turf surfaces can become. So they would be the sort of uh, circumstances we'd see in lizards. In turtles, it's really interesting, I think, because many of our freshwater turtles in Australia don't need to get out of the water that often. Um, I know that, um, you know, every indoor enclosure that we get to see has a haul-out surface and some of these are well 
they're very, very well designed for a particular aesthetic, but maybe not so well designed for the turtle. And they often have abrasive surfaces on them for the same reason that we talked about before, that people like the idea that the turtles can grip on it. And uh, in a wild, healthy animal, when they do occasionally get out of the water, they often will climb out on abrasive surfaces. But if it's the only thing they have and they regularly get out um, and the surfaces are only abrasive, then along with their shell, we often find that they end up with wounds on their feet as well, Brendan. Yes. And how do we deal with them? So if you, if you have one of those in the tur- in these aquatic animals, these turtles, how do you deal with the pododermatitis? What's the treatment regime is to get the maceration of the water makes it much worse. And so dry docking them is sort of the cornerstone of getting these problems under control. And obviously the same wound care, um, the flamazine type arrangements, bandages, um, dressings, um, uh, antibiotics if appropriate, um, anti-inflammatory medications to improve perfusion, but dry docking seems to be the key thing with my turtles that have, and they often do have pododermatitis associated with shell lesions. Um, obviously, they weight bear on all those five surfaces, um, and, uh, and and yes, dry docking is the cornerstone. Yes, although. The good news with these limb issues in in the reptiles is they cope very well without the limb, don't they, Mark? Like, so, like birds. so um, yeah, yes. Um, so I I rarely hesitate to, if in doubt, chop it out um, with 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 some of these cases as well if things are, are not doing well with them. But obviously, we do try and save the limb um, if we can early on. So yes, um, it's 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 a lot more complex than you think at first thought, these pododermatitis issues, Mark, not just uh, thinking broader than just the obvious potential causes of, of hygiene and substrate and um, and perches, um, but looking for underlying issues with them. Um, and then the the complexities of dealing with those cases, and and we haven't really gone into much detail with the with the um, more severe cases, and we might talk about that at one st- at some future podcast because we're getting close to the end, as you can tell. I'm about to wrap up, but um, <laughs> um, and apart from amputating that limb, um, you need to start digging deeper so to speak and i do try and avoid taking them to surgery unless i really have to mark and i think you sort of by the gist of your comments about therapy with 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 all these species we dealt with we try and treat them medically first because once you get to the stage of having to cut into that that hock area or that foreleg area in those small mammals um it, it can get quite difficult and you may not be helping things along by taking those ones to surgery. Um, but but you definitely need to do Im- imaging for them to see what, what um, underlying issues we have with them, with the bone, et cetera. So, yeah, we might go into that in a bit more detail in another in another, another episode because we have hit the one hour as usual, Mark, and um, hopefully our listeners are not um, driving off the road because I know the largest percentage of our listeners, Mark, um, listen to our podcast when they're driving to from a work or they're on the road um, between between visits to, to to practices or to clients or to um, 
um, yeah, they're just on the road on to, on a holiday. Um, so we don't want them to fall asleep. So I think it's time for us to go. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Vetgurus.com. Thanks again and see you next time.